You're listening to the Arden University podcast with Alicia and Kate, your hosts. Join us as we talk with students, academics and other guests about topical issues and subject matters connected to your studies. the Arden University podcast with Alicia and Kate, your hosts. Join us as we talk with students, academics and other guests about topical issues and subject matters connected to your studies. Welcome back everyone to the Arden University podcast. This week we are joined by Brendan Basson, the OBE. Uh, Brendan was the first black player for Arsenal and then moved on to Cambridge United where his career started and then to West Bromwich Albion uh, to be one of the three black players now immortalised in a statue at the team's home grounds. so uh, he's also a deputy chief executive of the Professional Footballers Association, which is pretty, pretty damn cool. So, uh, yeah. Um, Brendan, hi, welcome. Good morning, good morning. Later on in life, Brendan, you were also appointed the OBE for your work and efforts in equality on sports, playing a significant role in the launch of the Kick It Out campaign, tackling racism and discrimination in football. So it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show Brendan and of course we are joined as ever by the lovely Kate as well so thank you very much for joining us today it's an episode cool um so first of all let's kick it off talking a little bit about um where you started your professional career what it was like for you could you give us any sort of background at all well, uh, I got picked up by Arsenal as a 13-year-old when I came to well, I came to England in 1962, coming from uh, I was born in Grenada, coming from Trinidad, and I started playing football in England. Never saw football until I came to England, and started to play Sunday football, district football. Um, moved to London, and then I got picked up playing for my um, district, Waltham Forest. I got picked up by Arsenal as a 13-year-old, invited to train at the club on a Monday and Thursday after school. They guided me through until um, they offered me a schoolboy forms at 14. And then in those days, you could sign as a 15, at 15. I started at school an extra year. They offered me apprenticeship terms, and I signed at 16. And that was the start of my first tentative steps into the professional football. Signed pro at 17 and didn't really make my way at Arsenal. Only played about a dozen games. And felt I wasn't progressing. I needed to leave. And I joined Cambridge United in 1974. And that's really when my career started. And a manager, I must say, who really put me on the road to a professional career in earnest was Ron Atkinson. And that's really my uh, story in a nutshell. So uh, I I will uh, preface this with we we are a West Brom family. Um, So I am... Welcome. <laughs> I honestly, my I called my dad and was like, "Dad, I'm I'm interviewing Brendan Batson, and he hasn't been able to speak for like the last two days." Um, so I wanted to kind of talk a little bit around the racism you experienced when you first started in football, because obviously, as a West Brom family, um, I kind of know a little bit about about your history, and I read somewhere that. When you first started playing football, someone said maybe cricket was your game, um, which <laughs> in and of itself with you coming from the West Indies feels to me like that feels a bit racist in its own way. Like that's what you play if you're from the West Indies. Um, but, you know, when you when you first started, even in those kind of like 
kids leagues was was it even something that you you were seeing them when you first came through at kind of like 15 or even at county well yeah because i mean when people ask me this uh, about this about experiencing racism uh, particularly in the professional ranks it wasn't a surprise it was something that i'd grown up with uh, coming to england from trinidad very cosmopolitan country fantastic mixtures there i've got um indian i've got chinese in my extended family so when i came to england to be called names, racist names, was a real surprise to me. And gradually, you could almost feel the atmosphere changing around me by people suddenly realised that I was being um, uh, called racist names. Um, we were literally unique in Tilbury. They've seen people passing through, but not as a family. I lived in my uncle and aunt. So you've got to realise that this is a way of life now that you're living in England. And playing schoolboy football, that was probably the most intense because there were people who literally could grab hold of you and as you run along the touchline and you're hearing these names and I wasn't seeing anybody. I think I was 14 before I saw another black lad on the, on the opposing team. Um, so when you moved, what changed in the professional ranks was the volume. Uh, the numbers obviously increased. Um, and I remember going to West, when I joined West Brom uh, with Laurie and Cyril, Laurie Cunningham and Sir Regis, I thought things would be better. I, I think I was being a bit naive, really. Um, oh, without a doubt. And that increased, the volume increased even more because there were three of us, and that seemed to um, incite and annoy the crowd. So it was something that you just had to... You lived through it, and you learned to cope with the different aspects of it, um, from getting off a coach when people are spitting at you, um, to having bananas thrown at you on the pitch, all those sort of things. But it was just an extension of what you'd already grown up with. I, I grew up with it from the time I was nine when I first landed in England. So it was something that you um, had to put up with uh, and adapt to because there was no other support or anybody giving you um, uh, comfort in any way, shape or form. So as a schoolboy, it was... It was difficult, I suppose, looking back on it, but I think I was lucky because I had really good people around me, good friends, good coaches, particularly at Arsenal. Bertie Mee was a manager at the time, fantastic manager, um, great coaches. Don Howe, one of the best. He's no longer with us. But um, I think I was fortunate in that sense, and um, I'm ever grateful that I grew up at Arsenal before I moved on to build my career elsewhere. So when, when you moved from, from Arsenal to, to Cambridge United, obviously that, that was very early in your career, hmm. but you'd gone from this kind of big top flight club as, as it was in, you know, kind of the Arsenal into that, you know, much lower league and therefore smaller stadiums, fans closer to the pitch, kind of a more intimate, <laughs> for want of a better word, experience. Yeah. Um, was, did the racism feel different there to when you did when you played at Arsenal because they were closer? Was it more reminiscent of, of when you were a schoolboy or, or does the stadium size for you kind of, it didn't really matter, it was just more opportunities if there were more people? What I remember was coming on, I think it was my debut, playing away at Newcastle. It was, uh, as it is up north in the winter time, I'm sure it was in the winter time, it was grey, miserable, bit of mizzle in the air, misty. You could hear this wall of sound and I could hear the monkey chants, whatever, but it was a bit more remote, if you, if you know what I mean. As you've mentioned, when I joined Cambridge United, um, they were a very small club, 
not long out of the Southern League. They were in the third division at the time, at the bottom of the third division, near enough, about to be relegated. But I didn't care because I wanted to be in somebody's first team. I'd experienced some first team football with Arsenal. As I say, didn't really make my way. But I couldn't go back to just playing in the reserves. So I wanted to be in somebody's first team. So I, hence I joined Cambridge United. But as you sort of alluded to there, I could literally, I could see the faces. I could make out almost the hate in their, in their faces. I remember once playing at Bradford away um, and it would, there was a national front rally up at Bradford on that same day. And um, we, I think we, we, we did win. I think we won, well, we, we won the game. I can't remember the score off the top of my head. But the ball went out for throw-in. I went to get it. I was full-back. I got to get it. I think I was playing left-back that day. Went to get the ball, and the guy who'd had the ball was calling me all the names on his son, coming down with the ball, and he threw it at me. And I managed to catch him. He was still walking down the terrace towards me. And I, I thought, right, I want to flip him, throw this ball back at him and jump in the crowd. This was obviously before Eric Cantona, way before. And um, <laughs> I remember, as though I felt I was going to throw the ball back at him, and I felt a hand in my shoulder. It was the assistant manager, the coach, said, and he said to me, get on with the game. And I stopped him at tracks and I got on with the game. But yes, you could make out the faces. Whereas in the top flight, when I moved to, to West Brom, you could still sort of make out faces. But it was just like a wall of sound and a, a wall of faces. But certainly in law division, you could, they were actually walking alongside you sometimes um, to call your names. But as I say, you were concentrated on the game. It became a way of life and you just had to get on with it. Talking of names, the nickname was uh, Three Degrees was given to yourself, uh, Cyril <laughs> Regis and Laurie Cunningham. Um, how did you feel about that or how do you feel now about being given that nickname? Well, I've always felt it was certainly from the West Brom supporters. It was um, very done very respectfully for us. It, it was a publicity stunt by Ron Atkinson who at the time was, um, that was his first big club. That was a, he, came from, he left from Cambridge to join West Brom. So that was his first gig in the top flight. And it just so happens that the three degrees were appearing. As it happens, they were appearing in Birmingham last night. I got a call last night to somebody saying, are you going down to the, whichever venue they were. They were appearing. I didn't know anything about it. Um, but certainly, I think it was a, for the West Brom supporters, it was like a term of endearment. You know, at the time, it was a publicity stunt. We didn't think too much about it. It went on for a bit too long, probably, with all the publicity shots. But over the years, they just, the West Brom supporters just carried it on. And it got picked up in the papers, and they kept on referring to us in that vein, really. So I'm a, I have no problem with it, put it that way. So when the statue was unveiled at the Hawthorns, I think... No, it's not at the Hawthorns, actually. I mean, it's, 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 it's just... It's in the town. It's in the West Brom. Yeah, yeah, New, yeah, yeah, New, yeah. The New celebration Square, statue. isn't it? Yeah, yeah this, in the which, town. Um, how did that feel to, to kind of have that statue put there? Because it was such a long campaign to get it as well, wasn't it? There was funding and, yeah. and all that. So when that was finally achieved, that kind of celebration of you as players and you as, as men... And as members of kind of the, the West Bromwich Albion family, was that what was that day like for you when kind of seeing that unveiled? Well, it was, it was really mixed emotions because Laurie was killed in a car crash in Madrid in 1989. Um, so Laurie's, I always refer to Laurie as a, like a, a black Marilyn Monroe because um, he'd be forever 33. We've all got an image of Marilyn Monroe and we've, I've got an image of Laurie and Laurie's never aged. So I've only known Laurie as he was back in those days. 
And Cyril myself, when the statue was first cast at a foundry down in London, Cyril used to act as my driver, really, because I hated driving, but Cyril enjoyed driving, so we're going to go down to London to see it at the foundry. He said he's going to drive, and I said, well, I'm not, you know, so he used to pick me up. We go down there, walked into the foundry, and the first, the image, the way the statue was set up in the foundry, we walked into Laurie, saw Laurie first, if you know what I mean, and I remember almost jumping back and thinking, crikey, that's Laurie. So Cyril and myself, we went to a few functions around the statue, as we were looking for funding for the statue, uh, meeting people. And then, of course, then Cyril tragically passes away in January uh, 2018. And it affected me. It's still, like a lot of us, we, we still can't believe Cyril looked magnificent. He looked so fit. He was a really charming guy. I enjoyed his company. We all enjoyed his company. And for him to die in those circumstances, I mean, I know we've all got our time here and somebody else decides when it's time to go, but it was such a shock. So that day was very much about mixed emotions. Um, you feel very proud that uh, there's a recognition of the contribution that we made. We didn't realise as players we were making that sort of contribution. Very humbling that people thought we were worthy of something like this. But as I say, there was a lot of... Um, Sadness in me as well that my two, I'll be forever linked to Laurie and Cyril, and yet um, my two mates weren't uh, with me. So yeah, mixed emotions. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine how hard that day was. Kind of being held yeah. up as the three of you, and you being the only one there. Yeah, I mean, um, people try to be very, very kind, and people want to say the right things, and you know, difficult times. But I always remember somebody, an um, elderly lady, coming up to me. And saying, um, make sure you look after yourself, Bren, because you're you're the only one left. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I know what you mean. <laughs> West Bromwich. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the sentiment was right, but I think the delivery yeah. um, really sort of tugged at my heartstrings. Yeah. So um, I yeah, try and look after myself. <laughs> we're not sort of in the black country, are we? Oh my god! Right. Of course, that was yeah. what someone said. Yeah. Um, so kind of moving on a little bit from from your playing career, because obviously your your career kind of has been wide and varied within within football as a sport. When you obviously went off and you kind of joined the PFA, you've been part of the the ground safety boards and massively involved in, in Kick It Out. When you moved into administration, were you still experiencing racism in a different way you know you're not stood on a pitch being screamed at every Saturday afternoon but were you still finding that there was kind of institutional racism within the governing bodies or within the the kind of offices that you were working in oh no no not within the offices I mean um, the PFA is a fantastic organization Gordon Taylor the way he built that I mean I, I first came to the attention of Gordon or Gordon came to my attention because I was on the he invited me onto the management committee of the PFA, it's now known as a players board, but effectively they're the sort of the governing body of the PFA. And Gordon took over as a general secretary from a guy called Cliff Lloyd, fantastic guy. Um, and Gordon had a vision of where he wanted to take the PFA. Um, I'd have got my injury problems in 82, I retired in 84, and he asked me to join him. And that first 12, 18 months was very difficult for me, uh, having come from obviously playing and enforced retirement. I didn't retire on my own terms because of an injury. So it was very difficult that first 12 to 18 months, but you could see something being built um, that Gordon had in his head and he helped. He made me part of that. 
what I found, there was almost, right, I can't accuse anybody of um, direct racism, but I'd walk into, people knew me in the game, but I'd walk into a room and I'm the only black person in that room, meeting um, club directors, you know, when I went to boardrooms after games and stuff like that. And it's really, it's really nice that the PFA is uh, respected in that way that the directors of clubs will say, come in, have a drink with us, this and the other. But again, it almost took me back to my early days of playing when I was the only black kid on the pitch. I'd walk into a room, whether it be for a meeting with the other governing bodies, I'd be the only black person in that room. So I, but my background was my mum was a fantastic woman. Um, she made lots of sacrifices for us to be my brother and sister myself to be where we are today and she always by example she never let anything get in her way in what she wanted to do and to achieve when she first came to England with three kids she was a single parent um, set my brother and myself uh, for two years to live in my uncle and aunt so I never saw my mum for two years but she promised after two years she'd come to my sister and all the things she promised she fulfilled and she taught us by example that there's nothing can stop you if you conduct yourself properly because you are representative of your community. So I'm always mindful of, as I went through my career, that people would look at me and um, almost come to a conclusion about my background and my community. So there was that kind of um, development as you went along and it was a real departure from just being a player to being in the administrative game and having to cross swords with directors and club chairman and this, that and the other. But there was always a feeling that I was um, a guest passing through. I wasn't really um, part of that establishment, you know. Um, but again, I think I was fortunate Along the way, I met really impressive, supportive, and generous people. And I never felt um, that I didn't have a right to be in a room with them. I felt I was always on my own, but I never felt that I didn't deserve to be there. And I was, I was um, an equal um, partner within the discussions that were going on. So based on this experience in business and corporate environment, if you were to give advice for anyone else, especially with a BAME background, to find success there, what kind of advice might you give them? That's really difficult because we've all got our, we're all unique, aren't we? We've all got our different personalities yeah, and how we want to um, adapt or how we want to face maybe difficult circumstances. I think one of the things I learned particularly when I first started in that administrative environment, was to just to listen. I listened a lot. I looked at, I, I hear what people had to say. I saw the way people conducted themselves. Um, I met some very clever people, you know, no doubt about that. But you had to know your way around. Um, and I think it's a, it's a matter of how you conduct yourself. You know, you, you, it's a bit like um, if you're going to, an important meeting and you know there's a dress code why do you want to put people's backs up if you turn up in their jeans and a t-shirt you know what i mean it's a it's 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 being able to 
make sure that when you, because, you know, visually people make a, um, they'll almost, in their own mind, decide what that person is like based on their first sight as they walk into a room, you know? And we can't get away from the fact that you can spot a black person 100 meters away because just by the color. And you, if you've got any prejudice in you, you don't like that person because they're black. You don't know them. You've never spoken to them, but because of the color. So I think you've got to be mindful that you may have to try and win people over by the force of your own personality when you walk into a room. Things have changed dramatically, obviously, and, and, and for the better since my time, since my early days. Now you, you can see where things are moving um, in the right direction slowly, a bit like turning around the Titanic, but slowly. So you've got to, I think every generation has to deal with the, the, the issues that present themselves at the time. And it's difficult for me to give advice. I can, I can only talk from my experiences and say, this is how I did it. People will say, well, maybe you should have been a bit more um, of an activist. You should have been a bit more um, forceful, etc. But at the time, I felt the best way of dealing with stuff was the way I dealt with it for me. And if people didn't like the way I did things, then so be it. Absolutely, hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? It's like you got to. Do well, it can be a blessing. It can be a blessing. It can be a curse. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And um, we're talking just a little bit more about kind of your experience outside of of play actively playing the game. You have quite rightly become fairly synonymous with the Kick It Out campaign. So that was Let's Kick Racism Out of Football. I think was its original name. Ninety three. Um, seems how long ago yeah. it was. Yeah, ninety three. You got. Yeah. You got, yeah, very early on you were, you were involved from almost the beginning. So how did that kind of, how did you get involved in that? And, and what what was that like being involved in the ground floor of that? And, and how does it feel that it, you know, it's still such, number one, how does it feel that it's still having to happen? And yeah. number two, how does it feel to know that there are still people taking on the mantle, even though it's a bit depressing that it still has to happen? <laughs> yeah, it's, I can never forget it because I, I wish it was my idea. It wasn't my idea. It was, um, well, he's now Lord Oosley. When I first met him, he was plain old Herman Oosley. Then he became Sir Herman Oosley. Now he's Lord Oosley. But he was chair of the CRE, Commission for Racial Equality at the time. And I, I can remember it as though it was yesterday. I'm in my office in Manchester. A girl had rang me. Her name was Louise Ansari. He was her, she was his researcher, uh, one of his staff. And she rang me, made an appointment, came up to see me in Manchester sat down and told me the idea from Herman Oosley looking to use football to address the issue of racism within society, but football would be the vehicle. And it was like a light bulb moment. And I remember saying to her, just stay there. I'll be back in a minute. I went across from my office, across to Gordon Taylor's office, told him roughly what it was about. I said, look, Gordon, I said, this is the idea. It's about an anti-racism campaign. He said, well, what do you think? I said, we've got to go with it, Gordon. He went, well, get on with it. Went back to him and said, right, yeah. And I said, this has got to be a campaign, not just a one-off. This is an ongoing thing. And I'm her Muzi was a fantastic guy. And um, the we came up with a slogan at the time, which I still think is one of the best slogans. Um, it's only the color of the shirt that counts. And we used the, diff- the shirts of all the, the teams in the top flight, well, in, within the football league, as it was at the time. And the, another good thing about it, probably the best thing about it, it wasn't just a black issue. This was black and white players. And I remember when we had a launch, we had people like Ian Wright, Paul Elliott, Garth Crooks, Pat Nevin, Gary Mabbert. So it wasn't just about the black players talking about it, it was the white players as well lending their 
their voice to it as well. Now, I never thought it would still be relevant to this day as it was in 1993. And as you said, okay, it's, it's, it's almost depressing. I mean, during the, the, all, the, all the, um, the publicity and the demonstrations around the George Floyd issue, I went to one in, I went a couple in Birmingham and, and I listened to a young student. It was great. I mean, it was really uplifting walking into Centenary Square, you know, Centenary Square and um, Birmingham. And you've seen all these young kids, elderly people, all different colors, races, you know, it was, it was fantastic, very uplifting. And then you listen to some of the younger kids and they're saying things that I was talking about all those years ago. And you're thinking, well, how far have we come? And we have come far. We shouldn't be, it's not all doom and gloom. And we should, we should appreciate the progress that's been made. But when you hear the younger generation saying, I'm still experiencing this, I'm still this, I think it's all flipping egg. I talked about that when I was 13, 14, 15, 20, 25, 35 years of age. Um, so there's a, it's, it's, it's going to be an ongoing thing, but progress has been made, but it's flipping slow. Probably a good point to, to um, just mention that if you'll indulge me a second to uh, wax specifics on the impact you've made in my life. Um, Brendan, I'm I, blushing. Like you can't said, see, but I'm, blu- I'm blushing now. You know, <laughs> I, I, like I said, I called my dad, and once he'd recovered from the fact that I was going to be, he was like, "No, not not that Brendan." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, that 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 Brendan Batson." He was like, "No, no." <laughs> I said to him because he was fifteen, sixteen when you were playing at at the Albion, and I said to him, "You know, what was it like being on the terraces?" Because he, you know, he he would mm. go, and he said that watching you and Cyril and Laurie really changed this kind of 16-year-old boy's experience of racism. For those of you who are listening, I am white, my dad is white, so racism was kind of something that happened around him. Mm. And he said for the first time watching the three of you play, he suddenly was presented with racism as a, a, a personal thing, as something directed as a person that you that you know. Um, and and he said that that completely changed the way that he thought about the things that were being said around him and the things that that he saw happening in his life. Um, and he was suddenly presented with it in a way that he hadn't before. And I can remember kind of going for the first time to the football with my dad and being on those same terraces and him using the experience he had watching the three of you and the things that you did to teach me about how racism wasn't okay and how it wasn't okay that we said these things to these people. And and so your your legacy is kind of a very real thing that for, for me that I'm kind of, that I kind of live. And I know something that, you know, my dad worked at the ground for a lot of years. He was a steward right. and then he sold tickets um, when I was a kid. Um, and so when he was a steward, you know, he was hearing it and he would shut it. My dad's a big guy, um, gentle giant. But he, when he says, oi, stop, things stop. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he can remember kind of having that experience, watching you in those very formative points in his life. You know, he could have gone a very different way because the communities that, mm. that he was in in the kind of those, those years, they were racist. And he, while not racist himself, wasn't necessarily anti-racist. Um, which is what we strive to be, and and so yeah, the the things that you have done and and the the person that you are really has had a direct impact on me and the way I was taught um, as a kid. 
So I just wanted to say, at that point, <laughs> well, thank you very much. No, you're, you're, you're very kind. I'll, t- I'll tell you a little story similar. Um, after I got into the team at West Brom, Douglas myself, and that season, that 78-79 season that people still talk about, after a game, Laurie, Cyril and myself were out one night, and just the, the three of us went out somewhere, and we're in a bar, nightclub bar, wherever it is, and um, I could see Laurie sort of fidgeting at the time, like, and then he just suddenly shot off. We watched him go across. And there was about three or four guys, white, white guys, and he, was, he went across, and I could see him getting a bit animated with it, and he came back. And I said, what's the matter with you then, Laurie? He went, he said, you see them fellows over there? He said, they were looking at us. And I went, what? He said, well, they're looking at us. I said, Laurie, there's the three of us here, not many other black guys in here. I said, you know, they know who we are. They recognize us. He was looking. And he went, well, did you, the way they were looking at us, I just thought, I said, well, don't worry about it. I said, they're just looking. About a minute later, he goes across. Next thing you know, He's bought them all over, and we're buying them drinks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought. Well, in a way, Laurie was demonstrating. Um, maybe, and I, I'm not saying that these guys were racist or anything like that. But he's just just the way he did it. One minute he's having a row with them, next minute he's buying them drinks. Now they all go back and talk about Laurie, and in a way, maybe Cyril and myself because we were chatting with him and talking to us in a in a positive way, you know. Yeah. And um, I think that's what some people um, told us. Over the years, the impression that we made, and Cyril was fantastic at that. Cyril just used to stand there and smile at people, and you couldn't help but fall in love with him. Yeah, he was great. He was a great guy. Laurie was very shy off the pitch. He was a bit of an introvert off the pitch, but an extrovert on the pitch, a fantastic athlete. But off the pitch, he was quite shy. So the way he behaved that night, I couldn't quite believe it. I thought, what's he on about? But yes, one of my stories about Laurie, yeah, yeah. That oh, that's fantastic! I love the fact he was like, "We're just going to change this immediately." <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I think that's brilliant. Um, so obviously we're we're not just interviewing you because you are fantastic. We we also asked you to join us because you know we wanted to make a podcast episode that looked at Black History Month and and you know it's a very important time. Um, and the theme kind of this year's Black History Month, the the focus is actions, not words. Um, and ironic, that seems very ironic to talk about on a podcast that is about words. Um, <laughs> but kind of in your opinion, you know, how have you got any you know recommendations for things that people could do to show their support moving forwards in and out of sport? Is there an action that, you know, you think, God, if we all just did this, you know, once a week or, you know, whatever. Is there an action that you would say this could make a difference? Please do it. Well, I, th- I think it's so broad, that topic. I mean, yeah. one of the things that really upsets me is I look at, um, we're supposed to look up to our leaders and people in authority and people who can set, because of their their um, their status, can set the agenda. And it always disappoints me in terms of government and the, the way they conduct themselves. And, you know, I see people like, well, she's no longer there, but we've got a new one in um, uh, Sula Breverman and... Uh, Pretty Patel, some of the stuff I hear them come out with. And I think black people must wonder what the hell's going on. You know, um, the contribution that they've made over the years. So I think government's got a lot to answer for in terms of um, uh, setting the tone for others to follow. We, we, we saw the spike um, going back many uh, a few years ago when certain things are being said, all the issues around Brexit, the way that sort of um, seemed to let to embolden those people with racist attitudes. The, I think every, everybody in a way has to confront any forms of discrimination, 
inequality and you know not just not just call it out but if you see somebody behaving in a certain way not without putting yourself in danger obviously but i think you have to address it you have to the same way if you saw somebody smacking a child out in the street you go up to them and say don't you dare do i'm going to get the police so it's the same way if you see somebody whether it be to do with um race gender you know physical disability anything i think you have to show a care inside you you have to be to empathize with those people who maybe are having a difficult time um for whatever reason and my, I, go, I go back to my mum my mum always said every time you walk out the door you are representing your community right now I'm, i was born in grenada my family are trinidadians but i was born in grenada my mum is grenadian so when she's having me she went back to grenada my brother and sister were born in trinidad so at that time i thought well i'm representing grenada you know that's all I, that's all i thought about but in a wider context i know what she meant and i've tried to impart that to my kids and my grandkids and say look you know every time you walk out that door people see it you know they'll think about your color that's the first thing they see now in a way when i've spoke when i've gone to schools and i see i talk to young kids particularly young ones primary school I, a little story i was at a school multicultural and one of the things i always say to them i think they were between 6 and 9 on 10 so like that and i say to them close your eyes think of your friends and all your classmates and that and then think of though you're all the same color just have a think about that and i said open your eyes now and i said what did you think and this little indian girl put her hand up or they all put her hands up but it's looking at point over what what do you think the world would be like and she went boring that was it and i thought what a fantastic answer you know oh, i wouldn't have thought kids, that yeah. kids kids get it way better than we do the yeah. answer most difficult questions and they come up with the best answers they're very creative yeah. and i think if we can all just show a bit more love to each other it'd be a better world pele the great pele when he was in a stage when he was uh, playing for um, new york cosmos i think at the end of his uh, playing time there and he asked the stadium all to say love 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 and it was fantastic sanic corny at the time i remember watching it thinking christ what are you on about but <laughs> you know it's so you know the word love is so powerful you know if you can show love and kindness to each other then it would be a better world yeah alicia again it's that we so we've been doing this podcast for a while now, i mean alicia together and a common theme isn't it mate is that talk to each other be kind to each other it doesn't matter what topic we've talked about pride neurodivergency yeah. Yeah. um you know coming here as as a an international student it's a common theme that runs through everything and it always bears repeating talk to each other look after one another well i i live in spain i live in spain my daughter's lived there for 90 18 years now my son lives in slovenia i've just come back from slovenia um he's got twin girls of my uh, they're 10 years old now and uh, my daughter's got three kids and um one was born in spain the other two were born in england but they were babies when they went to spain and it's amazing i've seen things develop and change in spain um my daughter's well known now in in the the the, the, the town we live in because she owns a gym and so yeah. but you know what people are very very kind you know they i can't speak the language properly i i try and they're very helpful they <laughs> I'm sure I'm I'm a say all the wrong things to them but uh, I'm trying you know and they, they don't mind me making mistakes because they help me um but 
it's it's really nice to see again. I go back to my mum being brave and bold. She told us to be bold. And my kids, when they said they're going to live there in Slovenia, my son lives in Slovenia. I went, there's no black people in Slovenia, Jason. What the hell are you doing in Slovenia? <laughs> now you took to the international school, but they've been brave and they've been bold. They've gone to countries where they can't speak their language. My daughter's fluent now, but she's had to to make her way. Um, and they've been shown a lot of kindness in, the, in their respective countries. And I love, I love where I live in Spain. Um, so I, uh, I visit this, uh, it's, it's very sunny in Birmingham at the moment. So uh, I come back, I tell people I'm coming back to sunny Brum um, <laughs> when I'm on my travels. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so I've got one final question to end on an even more positive note, hopefully. Um, so uh, we, you were awarded the honorary doctorate at Arden's graduation ceremony this year. So congratulations for that. Um, Thank you again. Yeah. And uh, how did it feel to be awarded this? Well, I got I got very emotional actually when, when I went up onto the stage. It was it was a real surprise. I mean, this is um, I think it came through pre. Um, uh, COVID, so it was held, it was held over everything. So it's a few years in coming, but I mean, I was really flattered again and, and very honoured because you know a lot of things have come my way over the years, all to do with all around the football. Um, because I've been fortunate, it's been my life football and sport. Um, but yeah, it was really flattering and uh, very humbling. Um, I got very emotional because I think again, I've, I think of Laurie and Cyril. You know, I often wonder what I knew Cyril obviously. Was nearly 60. He was, he was just short of his 60th birthday, Cyril. Um, Lorios, who was only a young man when he died. Um, so I don't know what Laurie would have been. But at times like that, I do, I do miss them. And I think, crikey, you know, we'd have had a drink and a chat and a laugh and thinking, cry three black lads making their way and look where we are now. Um, but what was great was um, after the ceremony and mixing with some of the other students and what a range of ages as well. It was it was fantastic, a very very um, memorable day. So uh, I'm very grateful that uh, the university thought of me in that way. Oh, I'm glad you had a good time. It was great. It was great. Yes, yeah, yeah. Brendan, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast with us and for sharing Pleasure. your experience with us. Um, Good morning, guys. To your dad, by the way. Yes. He will lose his mind. He will lose his mind. I, just the family WhatsApp group's going crazy. Um, it's actually been going off while I'm sitting here and everybody's going, really? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's happening. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, we, we were very honoured that, that you accepted your honorary doctorate and, and became part of our Arden family. So a uh, bit like being with the West Brom when you're in the Arden family. <laughs> you can't get out. You're one of us now. Yeah. So you're welcome back anytime. I'm, look, I'm looking at your colours. Looks like you've got blue and white on there. Yeah. What? Right. This is the point that I admit. I put out a different shirt to wear and it was it was Wolverhampton Wanderers gold. Ooh, and I was like, I crikey. can't wear that. No, I can't no, wear that. No. <laughs> I thought, no, I can't do that. Couldn't so get away with that, no. When I went in the water. I would have objected. I would have objected straight away. You just, you just <laughs> left. You're, I'm done. I'm finished. We're ending it now. Um, yeah, so I, I did I did make a different sartorial choice. <laughs> but yeah, thanks so much for being with us. Um, thanks to everyone who's listened. Um, as always, you can follow us on all of our social media. Um, and if you have any kind of feedback, please leave us a review. We do like to hear what you think. So uh, it's thank you very much from me. Thank you very much from Alicia. Thank you very much, Brendan. Pleasure.